Thanks, Sarah. Hey, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so good to uh, have you here with us if you are new to EV. And, and how fun is that mystery lunch sound? <laughs> I don't know what's more fun, knowing who's coming and keeping it a surprise or uh, coming to someone's house where you don't even know. But yeah, it's cool. <laughs> have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you just forget uh, what you're doing and what your purpose is? Uh, in, you know, you think about in the little things, like have you ever walked into a room and then just like paused and been like, what am I here to get? You guys do that? Is that just me? Uh, <laughs> i got young kids, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep. Or have you ever done it, you know, you go to send a text to someone, you open it up and you put their name in the text field and then you just completely forget what you were going to send? We have these moments, don't we, in life where we just forget what our purpose is. And it's, it's human, it's frustrating, I find it frustrating, but it is human. And it doesn't just happen with the little things, it can happen with the big things too. I remember the last time Sophie and I went on holiday with our kids, uh, we got in the car and it was just really stressful and we were back trying to leave in a rush and we just got into a big fight to go on the holiday which was there to help us de-stress and connect and we just, had, we just missed the purpose of why we're actually kind of getting away. Or you can do it, I don't know, with your uh, career or with your family, you kind of get caught up in the moments of life in the everyday and you forget the kind of the big goal, what your, what your purpose is. I think likewise to that, we can do the same thing in our Christian faith. We can have seasons of clarity where it's really clear, where we're spending great time with God in a regular way, reading the Bible, praying. It might be a particular series or a bit of the word that stands out to you, or you go to a conference or catch up with a friend and just chat and debrief, and you have real clarity around what you're trying to do, what, what life's all about. But then life gets busy and there's deadlines, there's work, there's other things that come up and we just we forget our big purpose in life and we do the spiritual equivalent of kind of walking into a room and forgetting why we're there. Aimless, missionless. I want to put to you today from Matthew 9 that if we're going to have purpose and clarity about what our purpose is as Christians... If we're going to have that, what we need to do is look to the person and work of Jesus. That is, he, he is the one who will shape our lives and give them such clarity that we won't be the ones who are walking around aimless, forgetting the big picture of our lives. See, every year at EV, we look at a gospel. Uh, we, we do it because we're convinced that looking at the personal work of Jesus is the way that God wants to shape and transform us in his word. It, it's obviously not just exclusive to Jesus. It's the whole of God's word. But we try to get and look at Jesus, who he is, what he said about himself, what he did every year to shape and clarify for us our mission. Because the goal of our lives is not superficial change. It's not momentary change, but long-lasting change. The goal of our lives is to have change according to who Jesus would have us be profoundly and deeply impact us. We're convinced that Jesus is the one who brings about that change. And so that's why we look at a gospel every week. And last week in chapter 8, we asked the question, what is Jesus going to do with his authority? And we saw, didn't we, that he uses his authority to heal, to do miracles, to cast out demons, all these kind of things. He has all this power and authority from God. But also we saw that Jesus cares. We saw his compassion. We saw that he's not afraid to get his hands dirty when people come to him. And today in chapter 9, we're going to see what is actually foundational to Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth. 
and why he's trustworthy to actually fulfill that ministry, fulfill that purpose and mission, and how knowing that helps us to be shaped to do the same. So why don't you pray with me that God would help us to see that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Matthew 9. We pray as we read it now that you would help us to see what is foundational to Jesus and therefore what is foundational to us. We pray that you would shape us deeply and profoundly, that we would grow and transform and be changed to live for Jesus in every area of our lives. We pray with humility that you would do that work in us today and show us those points where we might need to change. Amen. So the first point, if you've got your outlines there, is that Jesus came to forgive sin and transform sinners. So we're going to get into it looking at the, uh, the first narrative in chapter 9, the story of the paralytic. So pick it up with me in verse 1. Have a Bible. We're going to kind of work through it over the next little bit. Verse 1, Jesus uh, gets into a boat. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now, Jesus was going around the Jewish countryside performing these miracles, and his own town is Capernaum. That's his kind of home base where he was based. And and news of the miracles are kind of starting to spread. Jesus keeps telling people, don't go and tell everyone about the miracles just yet because he doesn't want to cause this kind of big, massive people and, and have to deal with the implications of that with the Roman Empire. And so he's trying to keep it a little bit small. But people keep letting the cat out of the bag. And so, again, he comes back to his hometown, and a bunch of people just kind of come over to him. Uh, and you get in verse 2, he's, he's there in his hometown, and then just then some men brought to, to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now Matthew's all about the action. If you read this account in other Gospels, lots of the stories we're going to look at today, you get more names, more details, more places in you know, Luke's Gospel or Mark's Gospel. Matthew just wants to show us the authority of Jesus. It's front and center for him. And so what do you get here? It's, an, it's a super interesting, just one sentence, but it's very interesting, isn't it? Jesus' response to this man that's brought to him, this paralyzed man. The first thing that I notice is the emphasis on faith. That Matthew places. It's interesting who has the faith though, not the paralyzed man. Who's got the faith in verse 2? It's the friends, the men that bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. Jesus responds to the paralyzed man because of his friend's faith. And just as we kind of start thinking about these narratives and what they mean for our lives, I wonder has it grabbed you that your faith can be impactful to others? Has it grabbed you that God wants to use your faith and responding to Jesus in faith in order to change other people's lives, not just your life? See, at EV, one of my roles is I run the purpose of maturity here, which is to kind of help us grow to love and know Jesus more. And one of the keys to understanding maturity is to understand that it's not just about you. See, the mature Christian is someone who wants to know and love God more. They have faith in God, but they want to see others Come and know and love God and put their own trust in him as well. A mature Christian is someone who uses their faith and God uses that to impact those around them. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's the friend's faith. And the second thing, Jesus' words are unexpected. We've read this story a lot of times. For a lot of us, this is not a new story. But if you were in the kind of environment there in that first century in the room, you, you would have found these words surprising. See, the friends have brought their paralytic here on a stretcher. It's pretty obvious what they're looking for, right? 
They want Jesus to heal him. And Jesus' response is at best tangential and, and to the obvious need. The guy's on a stretcher. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. It's like if you were to take, you know, crack your phone screen really bad and take it into the phone repair shop and drop it off. And then you know, an hour later, you go back and, and the person says, oh, I've updated your apps. You know, it's, like, it's, like it's tangential, but it doesn't quite, it's not what they would have been expecting Jesus to say. Can you, you think about what, you know, what they would have been thinking? Come on, Jesus, don't worry about that. You, you know, can't you see this guy lying on a stretcher? He wants to walk. And in the first century, you know, there was no social security system. There was no government benefits. <laughs> if you were paralyzed, it meant you couldn't work and you couldn't earn an income and you probably would find it really hard to live. And, and this man, it seems like it's his friends that have brought him. And so does he even have any family? It's not clear, but he probably lived a really hard life. As a beggar, he would have been relying on the kindness of just strangers around him to support him. It would have been really hard. But Jesus diagnoses his need far better than the man could, far better than the friends even could. He analyzed the man and saw a far deeper problem than his physical condition. It's helpful for us to to hear this because we often think we have so many different needs, don't we? So many areas of our life that we would, if you were to kind of stop and pause this and just say, hey, this week, what's my biggest need? I feel like for lots of us, the things that would come to our mind would be physical things, things about a house or job or environment or relationships or just little things like that. Those are the things that are obvious and front and center for us. But they're not. And we're going to see in this story, Jesus does address the physical needs of the man, but he primarily cares about his deeper spiritual needs. And I think this is key for us to understand living in Auckland today. For two reasons. I think for lots of us, we live in a country where we don't need anything. Lots of us have lives where we just have no need. You know, our, our lives don't look like this poor paralyzed man. Lots of us, uh, we have great jobs and, and houses and fulfilling kind of relationships and friendships. And, uh, you know, the, the country is so beautiful. And you go to a nice cafe. And I was driving down through the countryside just this week. And I was just struck by how beautiful Auckland is. But it helps us, it forces us and kind of pushes us and moves us away from seeing our deeper needs. Because we're surrounded by such beautiful things. And even for those on the edge of society, the, the, those who are the kind of the poor, the vulnerable, the sick, those who really do see and feel their need, um, even in that space, it's hard to see your deeper spiritual needs. So we're a step further than the paralyzed man. It's far harder for us than it would have been for him to see our need. And if we can't see our need, it'll stop us coming to Jesus. But Jesus, uh, he's very clear in this story that the problem each of us face in our lives, whether good and easy or hard and full of suffering, is actually a spiritual problem. That's the biggest need that each of us have. And in fact, as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that each of the miracles that Jesus performs, he's doing physical things, restoring sight, healing the blind, uh, healing the lame. He's casting out, he does all these things. But each of them is a physical thing that points to a bigger spiritual reality. See, foundational to the ministry of Jesus is to 
deal with sin, to forgive sin, and transform sinners. That's what's his heartbeat in his ministry. It's what Matthew puts this story here of the paralytic right at the center of two chapters of healing miracles to show us what's at the center of Jesus' ministry. Foundational to Jesus is to deal with sin by forgiving sinners and transforming them. See, <clears throat> the, the leaders, the Pharisees, they get it, right? In verse 3, they think Jesus is blaspheming because only God has the ability to forgive sin. And, and so they're obviously thinking, who does this guy think he is? Being able to forgive sin. And it'd be like if you had a car accident and someone ran up the back of you and you're sitting there and your car's kind of crumpled and then a pedestrian walks by and says, oh, no, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. It's okay. You'd be sitting in your car thinking, what? You can't forgive that guy. Only I can do that. He, he's, you know, that person's run up the back of me. It's not up to someone, I'm the pedestrian to deal with it. That's how the Pharisees would have viewed Jesus' statement. And they, the Pharisees, they jump on it. If you sin against God, they say, only God can forgive you. And so by Jesus offering forgiveness, they, they, they see that as a, a blasphemy, a, a speaking down about God or saying about something about him being God himself. It shows us something about the nature of sin. See, I think for lots of us, we have a wrong view of sin. We think of sin as wrong stuff. And yes, it's also wrong before God, uh, but it's just primarily about doing wrong. But sin, by definition, is not about wronging another person. It's primarily about wronging God, assaulting the glory of God, rebelling against the God of the universe. Sin is a vertical thing before it's ever about relationship with others. See, it's interesting, in one of the worst cases of sin in the Bible, King David has a man murdered and then steals his wife. If there's ever anyone that's sinned against others, his, his example case number one. But what does David say in Psalm 51 verse 4? Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, David's not saying that he didn't do wrong to others, that he didn't hurt others, that he didn't have these, the tragic consequences that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life for the way that he's done such wrong towards others. But he's acknowledging that primarily sin is between you and God. Whenever I hurt others or fail to live rightly in the world and have implications to others in the world, it's first and foremost about me rebelling against God, a failure to trust him, and so that plays itself out in the world, a failure to, to hope in him, and so it plays itself out in my relationships, a, a failure to come to him and, and listen to him, and so I live and I do what I want in the world, and that hurts others. But sin is primarily between me and God before it's about the way it affects others. See, only God can forgive sins, but here Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on in verse 4, says, Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Now, isn't this amazing? It's so amazing, isn't it? There's so many amazing things here. First, they don't even say anything. Jesus perceives their thoughts. I'm not sure if they were kind of muttering and scowling or, or just he, he had the ability to understand what they were thinking. But you can, can you imagine how freaked out you would be if someone responded to what you thought? 
You'd be like, oh, well, who is this guy? It's, it's fascinating. It's, and on the surface, which is easier to do? Forgive sins or heal the paralyzed man? One of them is very hard to prove, isn't it? Uh, it's very hard to prove that the sins are forgiven, although in reality, it is actually the harder thing. See, Jesus' reply here is one of logical escalation. To this Jewish audience, they knew that the forgiveness of sins was God's prerogative, God's initiative. This would have been infinitely harder than the idea of healing someone. Plenty of prophets have healed people in the past. It, it, humans can do that. But you, no human has the kind of authoritative and unmediated access to forgive sins in the way that Jesus is claiming. And so what Jesus is saying is, if I can do the harder thing, well, then I can also do the easier thing. <laughs> he's, kind of, he's saying that the paralysis is actually the easier thing. And I used to work as an occupational therapist before I started training for ministry. And I would work with people that have become paralyzed in a neurological ward, strokes, brain injury, that kind of thing. And after time, your muscles start to atrophy. They, they just start to fade away. They stop working. And, and to get function back is just a long and slow and hard process. But this man, he's healed in an instant. And he gets up and walks home. Jesus heals him and he, and, he, and, he, and he even gives him the, the advice, get up, take your stretcher and go home. Why did he tell him to leave? Because he wants to show the instant and full nature of the healing. It seems impossible, but Jesus says that the instant and full healing is far easier than forgiving sins. See, we so often fail to see sin as serious because we have a low view of God. We have such a low view of God. We, we, sin cuts us off from God and puts us in rebellion against him. And it denies him the glory he deserves as the creator and ruler of the universe. And we don't think it matters that much. We think he'll just have us back. He'll just forgive us. That it, you know, God, can, God can do something there. God loves us. We've got such a low view of God when we think our sin doesn't actually matter before him. But you and I, there's nothing we can do to fix that cut-off, broken relationship with God. We can't earn God's forgiveness. We can't you know, hit a number of lists of things that we do to make God want us back again. That's what lots of religions try to do. Be good enough so that God will have you. We can't force God's hand here. See, compared to dealing with sin, healing is easy for God. And Jesus has something profound to say into this, that he's, got the, he's the one who can forgive sins. He has God's authority. Notice in verse 6, he uses one of his favorite um, titles for himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The title Son of Man, that's the, the Daniel 7 prophecy of the one who rules and reigns with God, who goes and sits on the throne next to God and shares in his glory. See, why does Matthew give us this story here in chapter 9? It shows us lots of things. At one level, it shows us Jesus' compassion, right? He heals the man. He cares about him. It shows us his power. He can do miracles. He, he, he's willing to do that. But more foundational... This story here shows us that Jesus' healing points to Jesus' mission. His foundational mission to deal with sin and transform sinners. 
The healing points to the authority to forgive sin. In fact, as you read through a gospel and you look at the healings, every time you see Jesus heal someone, you should be thinking, oh, that's pointing to his authority as, the, as God's king, as God's ruler, as the one with all the authority. The healings point to something far better. See, this story is more about the glory of Jesus than it is about the man who was healed. And for us today, we have something even more clear than a healing. Even more clear. We do think that God can heal today and he does perform miracles in people's lives. We're going to come back and talk about this more next week. But for now, it's worth just seeing that there is a moment that is more clear than any healing to point to the authority of Jesus and his ability to forgive sin. Because that's what these healings point to, isn't it? And that moment is the cross. The moment where Jesus once and for all dealt with our sin and offered forgiveness to those who come to him. The moment where his death and resurrection brought new life in us. See, here when Jesus speaks of his authority to forgive sin, he's looking forward. Looking forward to that moment where he knows he's going to die on a cross shortly. It's like this man's forgiveness here has been purchased on afterpay. The payment is going to come in the future, but it's so sure that that's going to happen that Jesus can forgive his sins now. See, if Jesus is going to make this paralyzed man move again, he's going to have to be strapped to a cross, nailed and immobile for that man to be able to move. And for each of us, that's the sign in history that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Far more powerful than any healing that could happen. And it ought to shape us as Christians. See, the primary driving factor of Jesus, if it's to forgive sin and transform sinners, ought to drive us. It ought to make us think deeply and carefully about how God's doing that work in us, first and foremost. And, and it ought to help us to care about the brokenness in our communities. Do you care about the brokenness around you? You ought to. But the solution there isn't just to go and deal with the physical and the, those things. That's great. We ought to be doing that as Christians. We ought to care for the broken and the downcast around us that we have relationship with. Those that we, we're close to, whether in church or not in church. But it always ought to lead people to see the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and transform sinners. That's where it ought to go because that's Jesus' mission. That's why he heals. That's why he cares. He's pointing people to the greater truth. It's worth pausing to stop and ask the question now. What things in your life might run the risk of jumping into the driver's seat and, and being the driving mission in your life? There are lots of good things that could be in that boat. A career, family, overseas experiences. There are lots of things that are good. But Jesus says that, we ought to, that the thing that ought to shape us is this mission that he's on to forgive sin, to transform sinners. Let's not let other things get in the way of Jesus' mission that was his mission back then and it's his mission today. I wonder what it would look like for you just this week to stop and to spend five minutes every morning and just pray that God would shape you to be on the mission that Jesus is on. That he would use you to help people to see Jesus' authority to forgive sin and transform sinners. I wonder what it would do to your life if you spent five minutes just thinking intentionally and praying every morning about the areas in your life where God's looking to change you 
and, and, and cause you to put off sin and trust Jesus more in that area of your life. What a profound impact that might have if you would just spend some time every morning thinking about those truths. Jesus came to forgive sinners and he came to transform them. See, I think that's why we get the call of Matthew just after this event. See, straight after this miracle, we get the story of Matthew, the tax collector. And Jesus calls him in verse 9, he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. It's, it's just this kind of one sentence. It seems like a throwaway. Follow me. Matthew gets up and follows him. Just, just does it in an instant. But it's worth highlighting because this is the Matthew that wrote the book. This is Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple of Jesus, the one who wrote this eyewitness account. And so I think while it's a throwaway, this section is actually, for Matthew, the most profound section in the whole book. Because it changed his life. It changed everything about him. See, why does Jesus choose to call Matthew? And why does Matthew choose to put it here in the book? Well, he, it points to Jesus' work transforming sinners. See, look at verse 10 and 11. It's, it's, Jesus is eating at, the, at, the, at a house, at a reclining at a table, and there's many tax collectors and sinners, and he's kind of just having a meal with them. And the, the leaders, they say, why, why, do you, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he associate with them? That's Matthew. That's Matthew who would have heard that and, and said, well, they're talking about me, the worst of the worst. And tax collectors were the worst. Jewish people viewed them as traitors. They came alongside under the kind of Roman Empire and the tax collectors would work with the Romans to get taxes from their fellow Jews. And, 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 and Israel as a nation was under this oppression of this kind of Roman rule. And, and, and the tax collectors didn't just help the Romans, but they actually cheated and lied and stealed and did all this stuff. And so the tax collectors were benefiting while their fellow brothers and sisters were suffering. They were the worst, according to kind of the Jewish culture. And Jesus replies to the accusation of why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it's profound, and it would have stuck with Matthew for the rest of his life, hearing Jesus say these words about him. Verse 12, he says, Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. See, for Matthew, Jesus got up close and personal with him. He told him to follow him. He lived his life and shared it with Matthew. And he wasn't afraid to get up close and personal with sinners. See, Jesus has got time for us. He knows our sin. He sees us in our sin and brokenness. And he does something about it in a real, transformative, personal way. See, what's his reason for it? Well, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus knows about our need and our brokenness. And he cares and he wants to do something about it to transform us. He then goes on to quote Hosea 6.6, 6, which says, I desire mercy or love and not sacrifice. And in the context here in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea speaks to the people about the way that they've lost their heart. They, they, they're doing all the religious duties, performing them, but they don't love God. They're not showing mercy and love to those around them and to God. They're just... They're not righteous. They're sinners. They're wrong with God, even though they're trying to do the right stuff. See, Jesus is saying, and he says at the end, in end of 13, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, just like Israel of old, they thought they were right with me, but their hearts weren't in it. The same is true today. 
See, Jesus isn't saying there's two categories of people in the world, righteous and sinners. He's not actually saying that. He's saying that there are two categories of people in the world, those who know how sinful, broken, and in need of rescue they are, and those who don't. That's the Pharisees, are the ones who don't think they need any rescue, that they're righteous. But Jesus says back at the, in Matthew 5.20, he says that to, the kingdom of heaven is only for those who have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. See, they don't get it. They don't get that the, the religious things don't change their hearts. But Matthew does. You can imagine Matthew, this tax collector, hated by his people, who, who had done so much wrong in his life, hearing these words and having them transform him. To live then as a disciple of Jesus, one of his followers that walked with him and listened to him. Jesus came on a mission to deal with sin and then transform sinners. I think for us today, it's easy to forget this over time. It's easy to kind of become formulaic in your faith and think it's just about the things that you do before God. And just like the Israel of old, we can lose our heart for God. We can think it's about ticking the box and doing the right things and, and doing enough for God and coming to church and doing all the stuff. But we're just, we just have this danger to kind of lose our heart for God over time. See, we need to learn from this story that we're completely dependent on God. It's completely His ability to deal with sin through Jesus that brings us into relationship with Him. That's the thing that starts our Christian faith, and it's the thing that we continue in, the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. And that means that Christians ought to be shaped profoundly to be people of gratitude, to be people of thankfulness. See, it's easy over time, the more we start to think that we're doing good stuff before God, the more that entitlement can creep in. Do you ever do, you ever do that? I mean, what's your default position in life? Is it entitlement? Or thankfulness. I think about my own life, and in some of my worst moments, I found myself frustrated with God because He hasn't delivered on what I thought He should. His plans were different to my plans, and I thought He should have come around to my plans. And I found myself frustrated and entitled and thinking, God, what are you doing? You haven't done it my way. You haven't delivered on something that I wanted. I need to, take a, I need to stop and take a step back and remember my dependence and that, let that lead me to thankfulness, not entitlement to thankfulness before God, reflecting on what he's done for me in Jesus. And just like Matthew, we also need the reminder that Jesus doesn't just deal with sin, but he's come to transform us. He doesn't just leave us where we are in our sin and brokenness, but his grace actually has the power to change our lives. See, Jesus is willing to get intimate and personal with you. Back then, he did it with Matthew and walked alongside him in person. But now we have even more intimate access to Jesus through his spirit in us if we trust him. And as you get to know Jesus more in his word and his spirit works in your life, he'll change you. I can think of so many people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. What is it for you? What is that thing in your life at the moment, that habit that you've been struggling with for a while, or that sin that you just kind of feel defeated by, and you've tried to change and grow, and, and it just seems to keep slipping back into it? Jesus came to transform you. And by the power of his spirit at work in you, he can do that. Maybe this is the week, to readdress it, to bring it to God, to work out what you need to change in order to change your mindset 
What truth about God have you forgotten? And what lie have you, have you accepted and taken on about Satan and the world? What, what is it for you that's going to change? There's, there's lots of things that you can do there, but primarily it'll be a heart transformation. See, the forgiveness and transformation offered by Jesus is totally new. That's why in verse 17, Jesus tells the story about the, the illustration of the wineskins. He says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst. The wine spills out and the skins are ruined. Now they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Do you see that? God's people in the Old Testament looked forward with hope to the promised Messiah who would forgive them of their sins. But they have no idea that the Messiah would be so radical. That his forgiveness that he offered would be so transformative and be at such great cost to his own life. See, the new wine, it's still fermenting. It's fizzing and bubbling. It's live. It's kind of expanding. It's, it's, it's doing stuff. You can't put it in an old stretched out wineskin because it'll burst it. There's no way the old could contain the new. And likewise, the new in the Old Testament, the new in the Old Covenant of God, the new in the Old Forgiveness of God, it's the same forgiveness, but it's totally transformed in Jesus. The more we understand Jesus' forgiving work, the way he comes to deal with sin, it, it, it'll change your life. It's, 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 it's new wine into the old wineskin. See, Jesus came to deal with sin and transform sinners. And he's trustworthy to the task. This is the second point in your outlines. Jesus is trustworthy to the task, so have faith in him. We're going to go through the next kind of four miracles quite quickly. We spent time seeing what's foundational, but I think these other miracles, they do show us that Jesus is trustworthy to his foundational mission. And, and as the section kind of opens there, there's a lot of urgency there. You know, verse 18, it's as he was telling them these things, then suddenly this leader comes before him. Verse 27, 27 Jesus goes out from there and, and two bright blind men call to him. Verse 32, just as they were going out, this demon-possessed man comes before Jesus. It's like bang, 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 bang. Like the way Matthew records the miracles shows us the kind of the great need of all these people coming to Jesus. Talk about a big day in the office for Jesus. But what we see is that he's trustworthy for the task. In 18 to 26, we see that Jesus is trustworthy, and he's trustworthy because it's our need that causes us to trust him. So you see it there in the first story. He's, he's telling them these things, and one of the leaders came down and knelt before him, saying, My daughter just died. This is verse 18. But come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. He's got compassion. He goes up with the leader immediately. And this leader is actually a Pharisee, one of the guys that's been critiquing Jesus all the way through. But still, Jesus has compassion. And before they can get to the daughter, though, he's intercepted. And, and, and verse 20, just then a woman who had, been, had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. 12 years is a long time. This woman would have had pain and grief and suffering for a long time. And in the Jewish context here, her physical illness would have had communal and spiritual consequences. She wouldn't have been able to be part of society. She would have been considered unclean. She wouldn't have been able to go and worship at the temple. And perhaps that's why she approaches Jesus from behind. She thinks, if I approach Jesus from the front, there's no way he would want to talk to me. There's no way he'd have anything to do with me. Uh, but Jesus' heart goes out to her. 
Verse 22, he turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. He doesn't turn away from her. In her greatest need, he's trustworthy. When people turn to Jesus with their need, these stories show us that he listens to them, that he wants to help. And he, and he goes on then after healing that woman to the, to the leader's daughter's house. And he gets there in verse 23 and the crowd are all lamenting. And verse 24 he says, leave because the girl is not dead but asleep. And the crowd laugh at him. It's, it's this kind of story of, you know, they're mocking him. They're saying, oh, you think you're such a great healer? Well, the girl's already dead. What are you going to do? Are you Are going to make a fool of yourself here? Have you ever wondered what Jesus means in verse 24? The girl is not dead, but asleep. See, sleep is used frequently in the New Testament as a, uh, a metaphor or a euphemism for death. But I, I think Jesus isn't just saying that, because otherwise he would be saying the girl is not dead, but dead. Uh, and neither is Jesus saying they've simply misunderstood and the girl's not dead. She's actually literally asleep. I, I think what Jesus is saying, like Luke's account of this in Luke 8 makes it really clear that the girl is dead. It says her spirit has left her body in Luke 8. Go and chase that up later. I think why Jesus says it like this is that what he means is that death is not as final as these mourners thought. See, before his presence, before his authority, in the greatest need, death, Jesus can do something about it. In the greatest need, it points people back to Jesus. And he gets the, takes the girl up by the hand and she gets up. It's amazing. Before his authority, even death flees. They're two stories of need. And they show us that Jesus is trustworthy when we turn to him with our need. I think as we read these stories today, we're reminded that Jesus is trustworthy with our needs. That we can turn to him. No matter what you're going through in your life at the moment, you can turn to Jesus. You can turn to him in your greatest needs. And he won't turn you away. In whatever the needs in your life are, you can turn to Jesus. We're going to think more next week about what exactly that means when we think about healing and brokenness and sickness in the world. Um, come back again next week. But here we just see so clearly that Jesus is worth turning to. His mission is to deal with sin and transform sinners. But first and foremost, we need to see our need before him. We then get another story uh, the healing of the blind man in verse 27. And it points us to see that what is trustworthy about Jesus is actually having faith in him. See, the, the two blind men, they call out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David, which is fascinating. This is another messianic title. The, the, the son of David is the, the promised one who will rule and bring blessing to all of the nations through the people of God. And, and these blind men who can't see Matthew makes the point they can see spiritually far better than anyone around them. It's fascinating. And, and he enters the house and they approach him, asking him to have mercy on them. And in verse 28, Jesus says, Do you believe that I can do this? And they say to him, Yes, Lord. And in 29, he touches their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes are opened. See, faith comes from recognizing your great need. But it also needs to be directed towards Jesus. Throughout this section, there's been lots of stories of faith. And Jesus actually makes comments, you have little faith, you have great faith. He makes lots of comments about people's response in faith to him. 
But great or small, at its core, faith is always directed towards Jesus. It's his ability, not your own. It's his power, his authority, not anything that you can bring to the table other than to trust him. So the other day, uh, I was walking down the road with my kids, and someone had tied a hammock in a tree out on like the front, front pedestrian strip. And the kids were like, can we get in the hammock? Come on, Dad, jump in the hammock with us. And it was a pretty ratty-looking hammock. <laughs> I was walking, I was like, well, I don't know if I trust this hammock to support me. Like, it's just hanging from a random tree at the front of a random house. I don't know if I trust it. Um, but anyway, I threw my kids in, and they, they were fine, and the hammock held them, and so I jumped in as well. And um, faith is like that. Faith is that moment when you're kind of like easing back over the hammock, and you're like, you know that once you like go past a certain point, if you sit back and the hammock breaks, you're just going to fall over. It's that moment of trust where you say, it's not about me, I'm trusting Jesus. It's that easing yourself back into the hammock. Faith is always about Jesus and directed towards him. All you have to do is ease back into it. Jesus doesn't promise to bring you healing right now. He doesn't promise that your life's going to be all good right now. He doesn't promise to give you that job or that relationship or whatever that thing that you want is. Jesus doesn't promise to give it to you. But he does promise to deal with your sin and to transform you from a sinner to someone who's made more like Jesus and who gets to then spend eternity with King Jesus forever. The Bible's clear. We can ask for healing. We can ask for certain things in our lives, but far deeper than the physical, the things of this world, Jesus is on about transforming sinners and dealing with sin by offering forgiveness. We don't just kind of unlock more faith to unlock God's power. That's not what faith is all about. Faith is the easing back, trusting God to take the weight of your sin. And Jesus' healings point us to see that we have great need and that faith is actually directed towards Jesus. Just like the blind man, do you believe that I can do this? Faith is saying, yes, Jesus, I believe that you can deal with my sin. His primary and foundational mission. And lastly, we get the story of the demons, of the, of the demon-possessed man. He's mute. And, and this story shows us actually that Jesus has all the authority. See, verse 32, just as they were going out, the demon-possessed man was unable to speak, was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who'd been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. But the Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. See, this final story shows us that faith looks like seeing our need. It's directed towards Jesus but it looks like understanding his authority is that of God himself. See, the crowds, they don't get it. Back in chapter 9, do you remember verse 8? The crowds were awestruck and they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. They just think Jesus is a healer. And they kind of follow him around like a bit like a traveling circus. What kind of cool trick is Jesus going to do next? And the Pharisees, likewise, they just don't get it. They think, oh, well, Jesus is doing these powerful things, but his authority must be demonic. And Jesus is going to call him out on this in chapter 11. Come back in two weeks' time. We're going to look at that story. But what we see through this chapter is that Jesus has the authority to deal with sin and transform sinners, to heal, to cast out demons, to perform miracles, because he's God himself. And faith looks like knowing that and trusting him. Faith looks like seeing our need and coming before him each and every day. See, Matthew records these miracles for us to show us that Jesus' foundational mission 
is to forgive sinners and transform them. That's what he's on about in the world, and he does that for his own glory as more people come to see who he truly is. And the, the miracles, the healings, the, all that stuff just serves to authenticate who Jesus is and what his primary mission is. And so as we finish this morning, I just want to ask you, are you on with that mission? Are you on with God's mission to transform you first and foremost, to put off sin, to put on living for Jesus? And are you a part of that mission to then share the love of Jesus and his ability to forgive sinners and point them to being transformed by Christ in those around you in their lives? Do you look at people around you and go, oh, I don't think, I don't, I, it seems like there's not enough hope for them. Oh, I don't think God could work in them. Or do you look at people around you with hope? expecting and thinking that God could work in any of their lives because he's worked in your life. This story helps us to be filled with hope and thankfulness as we walk around in our everyday lives, remembering that Jesus is on a mission to transform sinners and forgive sin. And he does it by dying on the cross. Let's pray that God would help us to be on with that mission too. Father God, we're so thankful for King Jesus. We're so thankful for these miracles that authenticate his authority. We're so thankful that he is the one who can forgive sins. We're so thankful that in him you have forgiven our sins and transformed us. We're so thankful that you continue to transform us. You don't leave us where we are. We're so thankful for the hope of the gospel. We pray this week that you would help us to fight sin and be part of what you're doing in the world. We pray that you would fuel us up for the task of sharing the love of Jesus and the forgiveness that is only on offer through him to those around us. Fuel us for the task. Give us a great joy and help us to do it together as a community. In the power of your spirit. Amen.